Nippon Air, Taiwanese Air, China Airlines, and the Royal Airline of Brunei are offering non-destination flights for scenic opportunities where they take off and land in the same city and they fly low and sort of go around the islands and featured brunch and commentary from the pilot. Uh, but I guess, yeah, either... You know, brunch they, from the pilot? Yeah. Or <laughs> they're really cutting back on their staffing, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Well, the COVID, pilot's like, I, I don't know, I can't, I, I, it's not going to be great, I can't do both things at the same time, so this is, it's going to be <laughs> pretty average. The, the planes fly I themselves, burn your eggs, so. so. I, I think about this in the context of like, well, number one, I'm just imagining this happening in the United States, so like, uh, folks, you can take off and land at Kansas City International. Right, like, yeah. It's like, you'll see Cape Girardeau, like, a few other places in Missouri. Panel. If you'd like an extra episode, become a patron and get access to Monday's premium episode. We do two shows a week and couldn't do it without your support. So please, if you can, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Today, I'm looking forward to talking about all this crap at the CDC that's been going on this week because, boy, it is just a beautiful, glistening fountain of details that I can't wait to talk about. But I think before that, we should definitely, because this is possibly one of the most on-brand death panel news hits that, is, that have happened in a while, which is this whistleblower complaint out of a prison, sorry, an ICE facility in Georgia. Prison. It is a prison. Yeah. It's just an ICE prison. <laughs> a detention prison. center by any other name. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, it's a extra, extra judicial prison. <laughs> So a whistleblower complaint filed on Monday by several legal advocacy groups on behalf of a nurse uh, named Don Wooten uh, alleged that the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia, which is run by a company called LaSalle Corrections, um, that they are engaging in blatant medical neglect and that they've been sending lots of women to a gynecologist who has been snatching out their uteruses. Um, Performing hysterectomies, you mean? That. Yes. Yeah. Unnecessary hysterectomies. Unnecessary yeah. hysterectomies with like questionable informed consent, and I think you mean without informed consent. Because yeah, it seems. I mean, it seems pretty. I don't know over the line even to call it like you know questionable at this point. Just like the the, the way that a lot of these women have been describing it is pretty fucking grim and evil sounding. Yeah. There's no. There's no way of describing like what is possible uh, in these types of situations. Anything is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, the the darkest things you possibly imagined are probably understatements. Mm -hmm. And it's the ice sort of like rhetoric around this is that they are, uh, I think, defending it by saying that they're just I mean, it's it's the new version of we're just following orders. Uh, right. But what they're saying is that we're just following, I think the, I think the phrase is performance based detention standards. Oh, God. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I looked up performance based detention standards, which if the list <laughs> is like food service, 
then hunger strikes is the next thing and then oh. um, health care and then healthcare for women. And I looked at the healthcare thing for women, and it's funny, I didn't see uh, involuntary hysterectomy uh, anywhere in the uh, <laughs> oh, no, but they, detention they put They put hysterectomy into Google Translate, and they, they had Google, you know, say it out loud in broken Spanish to the women. So that counts as informed consent, right? <laughs> the fact that... Do they actually do that? Yeah. Oh, could, my God. Nurses actually... Uh, I read the whole complaint last night. Nurses used uh, Google Translate in order to try and get consent from some of these mm-hmm. patients. Jesus. Which I mean, is why I said it's technically informed consent. And I've heard of this happening a lot in like regular hospitals to non-prisoners. But the context of it being done to someone who's detained in an ICE facility is particularly egregious. Well, it's just like, I mean, a lot of stuff. There, there are a lot of, um, you know how there's that, that thing among progressives where they do the gotcha of like, this was a this was a for-profit uh, ICE detention <laughs> facility, right? Which is like an incredibly fucked up thing to, to utter. Although, as I sort of was mentioning before, like a prison by any other name, like, yeah, it's like spellbinding, I guess, because uh, I, I feel like it's like now we know what the Holocaust would look like if the Nazis had neoliberalism already or something <laughs> like welcome to welcome. Welcome to Geo Group's new uh, new public private partnership, Auschwitz, you know, like uh, that's I mean, no, seriously, this is like we, you know, we capitalism running, will set you free. We're running concentration camps in this country and we're and very clearly we already know that they're among like this is just one of the latest in like a series of insane human rights abuses for whatever Mm -hmm. the phrase human rights has any actual meaning in the United States. Right. It's like the same degree of like eugenic experimentation basically Mm -hmm. of just like, okay, well, we're going to just decide, you know, whatever. I guess we'll just take your uterus out or mm-hmm. something right which is exactly like, you know and and to be honest the, the company that runs the facility where this is allegedly i think definitely happening which is owned by LaSalle corrections LaSalle corrections is a family-owned business and <laughs> um one in one every small seven businesses everyone's talking about huh <laughs> mom and it's, pop it's still <laughs> a mom and pop it's, it's a father and son enterprise actually oh still and so i started looking into LaSalle corrections because i was like I was just kind of curious, like, oh, which company is this? What state are they based in? Because this is happening in Georgia. But oftentimes in the South, these these companies are sort of based in one state. They uh, dominate the market in that state. And then they like spill over into other states when other prison companies are like, you know, put under scrutiny for for you know, horrible practices as LaSalle has been over and over and over again. And I just was, you know, with a lot of these, I'm always curious, like how these people got into the prison industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as of 2013, one in seven prisoners in Louisiana were in LaSalle facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, They made a huge push um, to sort of help and, help deal with like the aging parish system in Louisiana where oftentimes people were kept in jail like in the attic of sheriff's offices which was like a problem you know (laughs) yeah so LaSalle came in and it was this great collaboration between father who's a businessman son who is a pastor and investor friend who is a pharmacist the holy trinity like a true detective situation basically (laughs) father realized that prisons are like nursing homes you need occupancy to be high you need to treat people fairly and run a good ship but run it like a business watch food costs employee (laughs) costs so the lasalle prison company right lasalle corrections got started actually 
in nursing homes. Right. Cool. And the McConnell family, not that McConnell, but Billy and Clay McConnell, father and son, ran nursing homes and decided that wasn't making enough money and that they could go ahead and, and sort of transition into private prisons instead. Did I say, did I just say that this was the perfect encapsulation of everything that's wrong with our police state and with our medical system? Because fuck, that is, mm, that is some I mean, just further, just further examples that like, uh, <laughs> nursing homes are already carceral institutions you know they're like, warehousing so. institutions and they're 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 you know warehousing profit models and the way that LaSalle works in particular is that they they sort of split the profits with the municipalities that they take up contracts in which allows the municipalities to then buy all this like militarized police equipment um and uh <laughs> Stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's well, right. But also means that you effectively you create a bigger barrier to uh, dismantling anything like that when things go awry, because the the like municipality is not going to want to uh, lose the mm-hmm. revenue source. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, right? exactly. Especially not I mean, during a pandemic, too, when they're uh, like and a, and a recession when they're like uh, already drained. I mean, I think the thing that's fascinating to me is like we can obviously lay out this whole predatory true detective style mom and pop concentration camp situation, which is like almost buffoonishly American grotesque, right? Uh, right. Southern Gothic, whatever you want. I mean, like it's like, okay, we have a narrative structure uh, for that. And it's, you know, I, I'm really glad that you did the digging here, B, because like the nursing home connection is like very, very relevant for the way that our sort of entire <laughs> political economy of incarceration works. <laughs> but the the thing the thing that I think complicates this is that like yeah that's grotesque but the reason it is allowed to or one of the reasons I think it is allowed to continue is there are all of these sort of legal veils behind which it sits and in front of which it, it is like essential because we, we we like to convince ourselves that like we live in a country that gives a shit about human rights which it obviously doesn't uh, but we have to like pretend that like, oh, yeah, there will be if you read like the ICE performance based detention standards, um, <laughs> all of it is like, you know, referencing, you know, reports by the uh, AMA and like, uh, you know, every other line is like a doctor, you know, a medical authority will be consulted. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we we have these like professional authorities and we give them a lot of deference and 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 autonomy in our society on the premise on the you know whatever premise you want to say that they will act collectively in a way that like is to to the uh improvement of of public health and it's it's curious to me like the ama house of delegates has made a few statements on ice detention but like this is a situation where it's like the the professional sort of like sphere and the way that it thinks the world works is like, yes, we're going to issue this house of delegates resolution, maybe propose some legislation, but like there's no, there's no capacity for collective action on these kinds of things. There's only capacity for collective action on like uh, avoiding cuts to Medicare payments. You know, that's like, that's the Mm -hmm. main sort of like the way that you really see people sort of mobilizing. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing that this, this company in particular, which again has like, dozens and dozens of facilities throughout the South, both for ICE and for local and municipal governments, is that they learned a lot from their experience in the nursing home industry. And they have one of the most robust uh, supposed like safety check and medical procedures 
of all of these companies. Like I've been I've been digging through sort of their medical procedures and policies from from company to company. And they have this seven step process, which I think is sort of learned from the warehousing and indemnity uh, tricks that that nursing homes get away with and applied mm-hmm. to the warehousing in in carceral spaces. It's particularly violent as a translation because they have this supposed seven step way of of like approving medical procedures which is an ice protocol but then LaSalle on top of it has additional protocols that they say are there to ensure it but they you know they uh in the complaint and the whistleblower complaint alleges like that basically at every single step of this process it's designed so you can throw away documentation get rid of requests get rid of charting and their biggest their biggest complaint the thing that they seem to do more than anything else is like to basically warehouse people and specifically medically neglect them that's their mm-hmm. specialty or in this case medically abuse them i guess mm-hmm. yeah uh, depending apparently abuse, on the yeah. whi- alleged whim of the doctor i guess um well or 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 who they're trying to like send a kickback to, right? I don't like, even think that. I think it's literally a cost benefit analysis situation because they they brag that they only spend a dollar and sixty three on citizen inmates a day who are female for food. So if you have a pregnant inmate, that's gonna um you're they're gonna have additional nutritional needs that you cannot fulfill with right. um just like apparently in their their prisons, their ice facilities allegedly are much worse than this in terms of like what they're spending on food because they're not getting paid as much. But um, like in their prison facilities, they it's a dollar seventy five a day to feed male inmates, a dollar sixty five a day to feed female inmates. And if you were to have a pregnant inmate, that cost would go up. And they have a like documented history of specifically violence against pregnant incarcerated people that they're so, charged with warehousing. So basically what you're saying is this is like Cost. a very clear cut case of um, actually the, the explicit policies uh, and policy framework generated by um, like a neoliberal state essentially, which like makes so many of these uh, private entities the organs of its um, public operations. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the, the way that you like operate it is to do like horribly in, uh, including like eugenic practices or whatever to uh, to like maintain a margin. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they also are notorious for not even offering like any medical facilities at like about half of their their facilities. There's like no doctors on staff. They're apparently like reports from people who have been housed in their facilities say they are constantly tear gassed by guards because there aren't enough guards. So everything that they're trying to do is to keep costs down. So you have a pregnant woman, more food, you lose money. When you're on such a razor thin margin, you really have no choice in their mind but to uh, do these uh, non-experimental medical procedures that are definitely totally necessary. Well, I was just going to say, I think this is actually what makes, uh, let's say, uh, like the about face of... uh, certain self-styled progressives as uh sean mcelwee actually uh <laughs> so disgusting uh because like you know mcelwee like whatever we, we might get around to talking about this later but obviously everyone's been dunking on him this week freshly again because there was that atlantic profile of him but you know he made his whole like personal brand about being like the abolish ice guy or whatever and now he like won't even say that he's like walked that back and how can you fucking like 
like, I'm sorry if you're going to do that and you're going to just say like, well, you know, polling doesn't bear out that people actually don't like the fact that we have concentration camps in this country. Um, <laughs> then like, what the fuck are you doing except for just like, uh, I don't know, doing like unpaid intern work for the Center for American Progress at that point, just like <laughs> stepping back and you know what I mean? How the yeah. fuck can you yeah. step off of abolish ice? It's not that like people don't like uh, it's it's like not that people are OK with these facilities. It's that like to the the municipalities that that house these facilities, it's very difficult to actually justify closing them because of the way that they Bring right. in revenue, even the ice mm-hmm. facilities. Right. It'd be one thing if it was state run. If Same it was thing state people run, argue about cops and tickets yeah. or federal, right? You could actually dismantle and ramp down a program and justify it. But when it becomes like in Louisiana, it's I think two thirds of the municipal budgets are coming from the profits made by these facilities, mm-hmm. right? So right. and it's and and there is and I think the thing about it that that makes it sticky is that you know when you have like consistent fiscal crises just like over and over again. And if you look at like just what the other revenue streams for these municipalities in Louisiana are, it's, you know, trickles. They're not revenue streams. They're like tiny little sort of rivulets, uh, you know, going in. And I think this is why this sort of like this disembodied, way that the rest of fiscal policy is like described or really not described at all, but is, is so like disgusting to me because like we, in a, in a very clear way, it's like, we know what happens. We know that like, it is a very like good revenue model, uh, to, uh, have people that like the state has decided to, you know, have to be locked up somewhere. Um, it's like a consistent stream of cash. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the, the problems is that this issue gets hived off and talked about is like, Oh yes. Uh, you know, abolish ice. Like that's, you know, that's the main sort of, uh, sort of line, which absolutely we should, but we also have to like do a lot of other things to eliminate the, the sort of like political economy that because we can abolish ice. Yes. There will be demand for these things to come and reemerge in some other way. Mm-hmm. And unless you deal with that, yeah, we have a political economy that builds ices, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It doesn't come out of nowhere, right? It comes out of somewhere and it's, and the incentive structure uh, now, especially that these like facilities are like set up and uh, municipalities have like come to rely on them. Like they will try to find some other way of locking people up. And, you know, if they don't do it sort of with the authority of ice, they'll, they'll do it with some other authority, right? That like, it right. is, it is uh, like to say that like, oh yes, neoliberalism is like a uh, superior to authoritarianism is like, no. You have to like that. That would presume that these are two things that are not related at all. Um, (laughs) They're intimately related. Speaking of uh, wonderful things that America does, we should move on to (laughs) what's been going on at the CDC this week. Yeah. If you've you've, uh, stuck with us through that much more (laughs) difficult conversation, I guarantee you things are it's smooth sailing from here. I mean, it is still going to be it's still dark. This things are still very like this. We're going to the thing that we're going to talk about is this still exceptionally bad. But this there's some 
let's say lighthearted fun to be had <laughs> in this one as opposed to like uh the fucking concentration camp topic yeah we front loaded you with the human warehousing now we're gonna um now let's tickle have some you fun, with, with some intrigue uh <laughs> some intrigue in the offices of of the u.s government i guess you could say yes um, so we've talked a lot about the CDC and Redfield, um, but obviously Redfield is not the lone bad apple. Who Robert is Redfield. Robert Redfield, thank you, who is, who is, you know, single-handedly influencing the way that the CDC reports are coming out. There is also a wonderful man named Michael Caputo, who has been in the news this week. You've probably Quite heard a lot, yeah. about, you've probably heard his name this week because of either a unhinged HHS podcast, a press conference he did, or an unusual Facebook Live video that he also did this week. Again, very busy man. But Michael Caputo is a protege of Roger Stone and worked on the campaign, but he is now the HHS Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs. Mm -hmm. um, well, he, he has since, uh, I think yesterday, they announced that he's taking a medical leave of absence. Yeah, 60-day uh, leave of absence <laughs> yeah. to deal with a thyroid issue, I think he said. Who I don't knows? know. I yeah. don't remember. Yeah, but, it's that um, part of the thyroid that makes you into a fucking fascist. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that relationship is or whether or not where it is in the clinical literature, but apparently there's some thyroid issue that makes you into a fucking fascist, <laughs> so it's fun. Yeah. I hope yeah, they so fix it, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just take Let me that, take that the, thing uh, out, you know? Yeah. Let me consult the DSM on that one and get back to you, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we yeah. broke this week that uh, the CDC communications officers, officers Michael Caputo and his uh, appointee and medical adv scientific advisor, I think he was, Paul Alexander, have been trying to tweak language in the CDC's weekly morbidity and mortality reports, among mm -hmm. other unusual press strategies. So tweak is maybe a little bit... Uh under underselling their efforts yeah well but like which, which for so which for reference these reports uh the what is it the morbidity and mortality you are yeah mm -hmm. uh reports. weekly reports um from the cdc these are for example these are uh i mean these, these are documents that like for example we read often to find not just we like tons of people consult for um what is supposed to be like what is pertained to be like act accurate scientific information on uh new like uh, whether it's like case studies or other things that happen mm -hmm. uh with among other things because it you know cdc has a big purview but among other things coronavirus um one of the uh even one of these reports actually we talked about a couple of weeks ago if you if you've been uh listening for a while like um if you remember when we talked about the incident with like the camp kids uh mm -hmm. the camp of kids in georgia or whatever um that came from a uh, CDC morbidity, morbidity and mortality weekly report. They're pretty um, crucial to both scientific researchers, medical professionals, as well as science writers and lay enthusiasts, lay enthusiasts well, and, like and us. like science, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Medical professionals and, and like, uh, researchers, scientists themselves like read these and it's, uh, there, there, there isn't a, this is one of those cases where like, there isn't another, institution that does that like in the united states that does this mm -hmm. particular thing in the way that this is done this is like at such a different uh scale so like yeah political tampering with uh these while not unexpected honestly yeah well uh is not and it's also like worth thinking about the structure of these things i mean they're they're reports they're edited like an academic journal is edited there's like peer review there's an editorial board it's made up of uh researchers um, it is it is supposed to be something that sort of sits 
outside of the, you know, scope of these sorts of uh, uh, political appointees, personal kind of whims and decisions. Um, but <laughs> appears not. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So uh, Caputo and Alexander um, were kind of frustrated by what they saw as uh, like language by the CDC and some of these MMWRs that was not charitable towards the Trump administration. And so they bugged Alex Azar because they felt that it that they needed more oversight over the, the wording in these reports. Now, typically, these reports, as Phil just said, like they are um, peer reviewed, they're like scientific, like journal doc. It's almost like, you know, like a mini journal article right? Mm -hmm. Because they're very short usually, Mm -hmm. but they're pertinent and they're very useful. So, you know, what they felt was that some of the way that the, the, the scientific findings were being communicated was, was undermining the president's effort to open schools. And (laughs) (laughs) so they uh, requested to Azar and Redfield that Redfield halt all future CDC MMW reports in order for uh, Caputo to personally review all the language in them before they're released. Now, mm-hmm. typically, political appointees only see these because they get like a memo saying this is the MMWR that went to press this week. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't get um, advanced purview. That's not their privilege as you know appointed political appointed administrators. But that is what they were seeking to do. So they they didn't necessarily actually. It doesn't, from what I've read and like what I've been looking into, it doesn't seem that they actually were able to make a lot of changes. So it's not saying that you shouldn't trust these reports as being factual. I just think that it definitely explains why some of the language from the ones since May were a little more lukewarm when it came to conclusions than I would have expected based on the data they were referencing in the, in the, you know, yeah. report itself. And if it, looking at the changes that they made, I mean, I feel like going back to the beginning of this pandemic, like the one, the one worry that people kept telling me about, uh, and, and keep kept asking like, Oh, are, are you like, how would you study that? Or like, how would you, and like the big worry was like, Oh, the, the, the administration's going to like tamper with the COVID data. And I kept saying like, I don't think you understand how hard that is. Like that's <laughs> actually quite hard to do. Uh, if it, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in a far lower level of government and it it might happen for, for completely mundane reasons. It's like the way that these things are like the way the COVID data is aggregated is, is like hard to centrally tamper with in that, in that way. Um, however, the, like the one thing that administration absolutely can do what they have done is either, uh, like deliberately not allow the CDC to play a role in communicating about risk, like to basically take the, the, like the risk communication functions of CDC and like level them. Um, and to like describe risk in ways that, um, let's just say make it seem a lot more tolerable and, uh, a lot more, individuated. So like, it's not surprising to me that one of the things that Caputo tried to do in some of these reports was to say that, uh, Americans sickened by the virus have been infected because of their own behavior. Uh, and that was the, that that's like somehow it's, it's to me, the more, the more impactful thing is like, because like, you know, very few people are going to like actually get into the guts of, of these, uh, reports and, and like Caputo 
would have no idea how to tamper with the data if he like could. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's just like, this yeah. is this is a political appointee overseeing experts. Michael Caputo doesn't know the first fucking thing about epidemiology, so he's not going to be able to do that. What he can do, however, and like what is probably far more impactful is just try to tell people like it doesn't matter. It's not real. It um, and, and, and oh, if it does matter, uh, there's nothing we could have done about it. It's your fucking fault. I mean, that that right. to me. And that, that the thing is, that's not just Caputo. That is something that um, both stems from the CDC and the way that it's been. Uh, sort of instrumentalized or silenced, but it's also something that, like, I don't know. I see that everywhere. It is like it is in every institution uh, that is like you know making public health choices now is mm-hmm. attempts to individuate individuate responsibility for this and to yeah. like say, oh, we're just following CDC guidelines when it's pretty clear the CDC mm-hmm. guidelines are like contradictory and don't yeah. reflect what's yeah. what's going on in this science. I mean, the whole thing started in a lot of ways. Caputo is sort of just following orders, but he is so incredibly unsubtle and inept that he he's making a big mess of it because this whole thing started because there was one MMWR. I think it was in May uh, by a senior CDC official named Anne Sushat, which was actually a very good report but mm-hmm. it it just implied it didn't even like it wasn't like a strong implication the schools one no this is this is just a this was one that just implied that re uh mask mandates and lockdowns that tr- the trump administration kind of dragged their feet gotcha right Mm-hmm. Didn't even it wasn't even like one that had oversight or interference it was a very 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 gentle implication that if they had acted sooner less people would have gotten sick and And azar was not happy with that and azar apparently flipped out in a staff meeting and caputo and alexander acted on azar's uh frustrations and created such a huge fucking mess (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they are so incompetent (laughs) well no i was just gonna say on some level i kind of uh Kind of, you know, like listening to that, uh, like insane CDC podcast, uh, I do sort of respect the hustle of, I, I respect somebody who, who has the, uh, the, the gall to, to get on a podcast, uh, having no previous experience in the healthcare space and, uh, and giving, giving opinions, um, about that because uh I, I really truly identify with that but but regardless so this report that you uh mentioned be so this this uh mmwr um that they grew frustrated with is this uh is this sort of like the genus of the whole um the thing that i i heard not just michael caputo uh but also a bunch of other uh trump officials say recently which i feel like at this point is practically like the peewee's playhouse word of, like word of the week or whatever in <laughs> the trump administration which is yes edition is this like uh what was the sort of like yeah genesis of uh them thinking that like cdc scientists are engaged in like sedition against the trump administration or against trump himself that's what it seems to be it seems to be that like the um so the implication that these lockdown orders should have been like either national or mask mandates should have been national or that there should have been a push from the federal government to institute lockdown sooner um, seems to be what is the the turning point for uh, Caputo to start thinking of the cadre of CDC scientists as active deep state plants <laughs> who are seeking to, you know, undermine the uh 
the the Trump administration and uh, let's see, what are the things that he he accuses them of specifically? Yeah, basically saying that the CDC is harboring a resistance unit of scientists <laughs> who are, um, you know, he accused them of, of, of sedition, working against the government, working to undermine the federal government through their scientific work at the CDC simply for their interference and critique. Right. So that involved him like first by starting to try and alter two pre-published reports, which Redfield was like, no. And he started then complaining on the podcast and in other appearances and in emails um, after that about, you know, how the scientists were basically like part of a giant left wing plot for insurrection yeah. post <laughs> the election. If Trump lost, basically, mm -hmm. I know it sounds like a leap. Because it is. <laughs> I, I can't really explain the logic of how you get there from... I mean, what he's explaining like, sounds cool, so sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, the idea that, like, there was a report that was slightly critical of the response time translates into CDC scientists are part of a armed left-wing insurrection planning not, sedition not, against the U.S. government. But also, like, not critical of the response time, simply describing... The, what mm -hmm. happened describing aspects of the response right i mean that's the thing is that the, the really amusing thing to me is the way that people used to describe like the politicization of research as like uh we are going in there with like a with a um you know with a, a outcome that we want to find and then we're like you know hyping it up and it's like you know you know like what heritage foundation does okay like we all know that's what they do and what's what they do okay but like now what is be, like what they are describing as the politicization of research is like, oh, yeah, there just happened to be these findings right. uh, and right. they're, they're calling them critiques is like, no, they're not uh, not actually critiques at all. Um, they're just sort of descriptive, um, you know, uh, you know, descriptions of the world. But I think I think the funny thing about Caputo is that he was advised by this guy. Alexander. Have you guys read much about Alexander, Paul Alexander? No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So like he's a, um, a health researcher, uh, got his PhD at McMaster in, uh, in Canada, but he studied under this guy, um, uh, Gordon Guyot, who was, who is like a really like well-published, uh, sort of researcher whose career in part is he's the co-chair of something called uh, the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, evaluation. So like basically the, the people who like grade the public health guidelines that for example, WHO puts out. Right. And so Alexander's dissertation, which is like directed by Guyot, um, was about sort of the idea that, uh, WHO, like they, they found that in a certain sample of WHO recommendations, uh, you know, a, a, a certain chunk of them, like a substantial chunk of them were made even when the statistical sort of like basis was, you know, sort of borderline. Right. And it's interesting because like, okay, criticize public health, you know, guidelines uh, as you will. I mean, that's like legitimate sort of research question, but here, and I would love to know more about how he got involved with Caputo but it's like that idea that like, oh, we just don't know or things are uncertain. That's like the that is like the main theme in in like the symphony of horrors uh, mm -hmm. here, 
which is like, they're not like twisting it and saying, no, everything's fine. The main theme that you see throughout all of these things is like, we just don't know. And like with the schools thing, it's like, uh, they're like, oh, well, we just don't know enough. Uh, well, yeah. we just don't know what's going to happen. Like when schools, uh, reopen. And so you can't like make a guideline about it. It's like the, the evidence is too, uh, sort of uncertain. And it does sort of remind me about this, this moment where I was working, um, at a, at another university and like was approached by a guy who was like, what we really want you to do is very carefully evaluate the, uh, uh surgeon general's report on UV rays. And, and we're like, okay, like, maybe, <laughs> uh, and I was sitting there with a person who's like a really well-known statistician. And she's like, well, no, I mean, the, the statistical evidence on the harmful effects of UV like is pretty clear. He's like, you know, but what about the qualitative evidence? He's like, have you ever like tasted a peach? Like what would a peach taste? You know? And then like, and then it like turned out like after like several efforts, he started talking about Kant and like after like several hours, like it became clear he actually worked for the tanning bed industry. And like, so it, um, but, but like the whole thing was like, it's like, well, no, no, we just think it's not, we just think it's the, the, the costs and benefits aren't, aren't as clear. It's, it's a little bit more uncertain. And that is the whole, that is the whole game here, uh, is like, oh, we just don't know. Um, I mean, to be honest, actually, I did find out the reason why they met and how Alexander got hired, which was just that Caputo used to host a talk radio show and Alexander was a frequent guest. So when Trump hired him, he called Alexander because Trump said you should bring some scientific expertise into your department. <laughs> right. Well, this this, yeah. is the, this is the thing, though. So, like, um, I think especially because um, these these two, like Alexander and Caputo, are both sort of uh, these very like colorful characters. Essentially, mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. I, Caputo, I, especially. I think you're going to see a lot of. Um, like, I, th- I think you're going to see a lot of uh, people sort of like, yeah, painting this as like buffoonery or something. Whereas actually, um, like, Phil, I'm, I'm glad you brought in stuff about Alexander because it seems like actually uh, the pairing of these two is quite like a match made in heaven in a way. Because mm-hmm. uh, if Alexander's entire deal is essentially like, you know, undermining uh, bases of like, uh, like, you know, whether we can truly establish uh, that something has like scientific accuracy or efficacy or not um caputo's whole deal which is largely in sort of like pr and what i guess i would call what seems to be mostly like sort of like um i mean like roger stone-esque like smear campaign stuff mm-hmm. um, communication i mean do, do you guys <laughs> what do you guys know about michael caputo i'm curious because honestly I don't know a lot. I wanted to look into it last night and I fell asleep with my phone on my face. So. <laughs> okay. So I would like to, I guess, uh, sort of uh, take us aside for a moment for what I guess I will call a unique one time only segment called uh, Michael Caputo. This is your life. I think um, <laughs> I just want to I just want to be clear. So like everything that I'm about to say is like based on uh, just like st- like stuff that exists in like extant reporting uh, out there. This is not like any original reporting. So like whatever I'm saying just to like say this is all I guess like whatever. I'm basically slapping a huge allegedly on most of this essentially. <laughs> but cool. from from what I've seen in public documents, here is the here is this guy's background. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> And I'm, I'm saying this because uh, so I think a lot of Trump administration figures, especially like have like if you think of like Seema Verma, even though she had like a, a scandal uh, recently, like 
you know, Seema Verma still like if you try to like, sort of like look into her, um, there's like there's not a ton about her like pub like what she's been engaged in in like public life, for example. Uh, and I think that's true of a lot of sort of tr- like general Trump administration figures. They they like stay out of like a general spotlight mm-hmm. um, for good reason. Mike, Michael Caputo is very different uh, to the point <laughs> yeah. that at a, at a certain point on his old website. Uh, which I was trawling on the Wayback Machine last oh God, uh, yeah. last night. Um, <laughs> oh, Artie. He, he described himself as the Forrest Gump of politics. Excuse me? <laughs> in his bio on, yes. the, on the landing page of his uh, blog. So, Does he mean that he also taught Elvis how to dance? No, or but, <laughs> no he, did, he did much more interesting things. Uh, so... so um, Okay, so basically, like, so Michael Caputo's life begins in Buffalo, New York. He's the son of an insurance salesman. Of course. um, Who drops Mm -hmm. him off at military school when he's right out of high school and tells him, if you come back and you haven't changed, uh, like, you're not welcome in my house. Um, Oh, boy. He goes to, he goes, he, like, enrolls in the military. Um, Allegedly, there's, like, a, I'm sure this is apocryphal, but basically, um, Reagan, when Reagan is in power, he, uh, like, he increases the military budget and when Caputo uh, sorry military payroll budget and when Caputo realizes that Ronald Reagan is responsible for his like 10% pay increase he decides from that day forward he will be a Republican oh my um, god <laughs> this is his story um, he then goes he like leaves the military he goes to college um, where he goes to college in Buffalo where he already is like engaged in trying to orchestrate um, takedowns of liberal professors he uh, suspects of being quote closet Marxist wow he sounds like such a pain in the ass <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, don't know exactly how this happens but after working briefly on Jack Kemp's uh, campaign he ends up then working for the Inter-American Security uh, uh Council or Council for Inter-American Security in Nicaragua, working to disseminate PR and uh, connect uh, like people like against the Sandinistas. Essentially, oh, like my um, it's, <laughs> it's not clear the degree to which he like. Basically, he's like this is all like happening like basically during Iran Contra. So like mm-hmm. literally, there's a bu- there's a bunch of uh, things that sort of allege that he was like. Uh, there's there's one thing in like a I think a Washington Post. Um, or it's maybe it's Buffalo News uh, article that says he was like rubbing elbows with Oliver North. Um, <laughs> so what a cool brag. Yeah. Uh, saying, like that's on his CV, though. That's like he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was rubbing elbows with Oliver North. So then he he, he like comes back from Nicaragua, works for uh, the Bush Quail reelection campaign. While he's working for the Bush Quail reelection campaign, he uh, and I promise you I am not making this up. Uh, he engages with a friend of his to lead a grassroots PR effort to keep Twin Peaks from getting canceled. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he's done some good stuff in his life. I mean, so he, uh, <laughs> he and his friend created a, a group called Coop, the committee opposing <laughs> the offing of Peaks. No. Um, they sold T-shirts reading, all we are saying is give Peaks a chance. And... Uh, <laughs> And um, what was he like a fan of the businessmen or something? No, these two like loved the show. There were he was like 28 at the time, I guess. Uh, is this why he's afraid of long shadows in his apartment? <laughs> now? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, but like his uh, his collaborator, uh, Keith Poston, is quoted in the Washington Post in a 1991 article saying, 
uh, quote, to me, Twin Peaks is the sole creative thing on TV. Two years ago, if people had told me I would be organizing a grassroots group to save a TV program, unless it was the McLaughlin group, I would have said they were crazy. <laughs> um, oh <my> God. <laughs> Um, this man is excellent <laughs> yeah so then uh well i mean he's a total piece of shit and uh, i know very, but I just, he's said he's, like a lot of uh, racist shit on twitter about chinese people and uh cool. and like about women but like what you know, a good whatever. fit for for uh the department of health and human services <laughs> he's definitely led a charmed life um <laughs> yeah so he has a he spends basically the entire 90s um, in Russia because like all the kids, uh, you know, at, at the time he he sees the collapse of the Soviet Union as a great opportunity to like foster capitalism and, and get get a cut. So he went to, to Burkine, right? Just spent spent a bunch of time at Burkine or in Russia. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, no. Vince is just like missing the club so much that his brain is honestly, club. it's become fall and I would like to go back to the club. Can somebody make <laughs> can somebody make that happen for me? Come on. Um, come on. You just need that COVID suit, Vince. But yeah, so, I know. but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to sort of pass over that. Cause really like, I, I think a lot of people like even the, like during all the Russiagate stuff, uh, like Caputo was like looked at as like being suspect, uh, as being in the Trump administration because he had like ties to Russia. He lived there for like 10 years. Um, and you know, but like really, as I, as I sort of joked, like a lot of people were doing, he, he is like of a type essentially, mm-hmm. but he, okay, here's where stuff gets interesting. Oh my God. Wait, it's, we're not at the interesting part. Yeah. Yet. I was going to say, so damn. in the early two thousands, he moves back to the U S um, he, uh, he gets a call from Roger Stone, uh, who convinces him to move to Miami beach and start a PR company. He does that. Um, then, uh, Michael Caputo, uh, he, at some point, um, some, some, I guess a journalist is killed, like a For- Forbes magazine journalist is killed, uh, in Moscow. Uh, and he, he writes this, uh, this op-ed for Michael Caputo writes this op-ed for the Washington post about how, uh, like the, the, the whatever, like the brutal billionaires of, of, of Russia or something. Right. And calls mm-hmm. out a couple specific, specific people. This is the first instance I can see of, uh, him starting to say that he's receiving death threats. Um, Interesting. so cool. he's written this article, uh, this like op-ed he's getting death threats. Um, Michael Caputo buys himself a gun hmm. and a boat and it becomes is Miami a boat guy. Oh, hell yeah. It is Miami. That totally makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of people who said they got death threats and decided to live on a boat after yeah. that. So yeah, he, <laughs> I'm not he, even joking. He's like, he, he's a, he becomes a lives on his boat guy. Uh, he buys a tiny tugboat called the Maribel. Wait, he bought a tugboat. He bought a tugboat. That is oh yeah. No, I like this guy more and more. Called the I Maribel. Think and I would be friends actually in real life. And, <laughs> And he buys a parrot, okay, uh, a white parrot who he names August Does, West, oh which as God. far as I can tell is named after a character from a Grateful Dead song who is a homeless man. Does he? Um, this is do, incredible. Oh my God. Okay. Um, Again, liking like, him more and more. Why are you humanizing him? Enjoying him okay, and I'm his sorry. affect. Again. Very well. Again. Terrible. <laughs> like do, do not like any of the things that this guy stands for or does at, at all however 
I think, a particularly fascinating eccentric in he my mind. He knows how to pick a boat and how to pick a good parrot name. You got to give him right. that. Did he also? Did he also pick up like an eye patch and a? Uh, and like a peg leg did he go full <laughs> did he go full pirate or no there uh, is like major miami parrot guy culture where there are just dudes at the beach not just the dudes who will say like if you give me five dollars i'll take a polaroid of you with all of my parrots on your body but there are just guys that hang out like in bathing suits with their parrots smoking cigars right hmm. <laughs> um so tracks so no he, do- he does not become a pirate but <laughs> he doesn't start dressing like a pirate but you know what he does is so he's got his boat and he's got his parrot. He becomes a blogger. Um, he starts <laughs> oh, the a second blog. thing down as, as Jimmy <laughs> Buffett sings. You know, wasting away again in Bloggeritaville. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his blog was called A Reasonable Shade of Green, um, and it's me? him fashioning himself as a like green Republican, like as a. Republican for renewable energy, which, as you can imagine, this is actually a through line to what happens later, uh, is mostly stuff about personal responsibility as it regards this makes so much sense for early aughts miami though yeah it totally makes so much sense also just to just to keep in mind here i'm gonna i'm just gonna do something really really quick uh if you will take a look at the chat i am gonna really quick pop in an image of what he looked like at the time uh content warning i would charitably describe him as looking at this time a bit like if you hired someone to play matt chrisman in a movie i'm looking at it i've got i've got the image within oh my god this is so perfect this is it's like anyone want to do an image description it's really good Uh, oh my god is he wearing a floridian west indies shirt I don't know. Yeah, he probably is. <laughs> so yeah, it's anyway. A, it's a sort of uh, ra- uh, be- sort of scraggly bearded. Uh, He's what a key age West would you man. put him at there? He's, what age would you? Uh, I think he was like thirty eight. He's, he's at that a point. he's a. I would say he's a Florida 40, which is somewhere between the ages of 27 and 65. But they're so (laughs) tan that it's like very difficult to tell. And they're kind of always a little alcohol bloated. So it's also very difficult to tell. (laughs) I was going to say And they're wearing sunglasses. in there. And because they wear sunglasses all the time, like usually you don't get the crow's feet the same way because you're not squinting. So, Mm. (laughs) you know, I'd say he's Florida 40. And definitely he is a kind of guy who like trucks down his little tugboat down to the keys a couple times a year to like get wasted and go pee in Hemingway's lawn or some shit. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So he, he's, uh, you know, um, he's, he's, he's a Florida 40. He's got his blog. Um, his blog is not actually that much about renewable energy or stuff. It's actually mostly like lengthy posts about, uh, like grousing about, florida's waste management laws um and uh then there's like there's cute little things like when the this ran between like 2008 and 2012 and so like during the during the great recession he um he writes posts like cute little things like about how uh new york state should cut its medicaid program to the bone um to be like just to the like the bare minimum not in violation of federal law essentially Mm. to save money um he other posts include quote uh let's do more than drill which is about offshore drilling uh quote the very best restaurant in the world it's in hamburg new york no kidding 
which is a glowing Yelp style review of a restaurant called Daniel's outside of Buffalo, New York. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, quote, uh, Al Gore's houseboat rocks, which is a defense of Al Gore's houseboat. So, I mean, long story, long story short, basically, uh, yeah, during his eventful time as a boat guy blogger uh, with a parrot and a penchant for Grateful Dead tunes um, (laughs) and tie dye t-shirts, the uh, he was still like working like he's still he's still running like a PR um, uh, operation. And so there's a he actually has I I managed to find his YouTube page, which has something like 60 subscribers or something. But um, I will uh, so plug plug for the discord server. Um, Join the death panel discord server because I'm going to post a bunch of uh, Michael Caputo's YouTube videos in there. Um, they (laughs) include a video that is a walkthrough of, uh, the Maribel, his, uh, his houseboat and all about how there's a couple like, um, you gotta hand it to the guy. He's pretty good at names. The reasonable (laughs) shade of green and Maribel. Those are pretty, pretty good names. Sure. August West. West? Yeah. You would expect from a communications guy, you know, it's, uh, yeah, Yeah, this guy has been described in, in journalists and in, uh, some like, Journalistic coverage is uh, having an impish spirit, which it seemingly like impish seems like a great adjective for him. Yeah, yeah, seems seems accurate. Um, totally tracks for Florida too. The, he's, a real, uh, he's a real goof, right? Um, the the best one. Uh, so keep out on a lookout for this if you're in the Discord server. I guess I'll post it in episode chat in the episode chat channel. But there is a specific one which is he was trying to he was doing a PR campaign trying to oppose i think uh, i wasn't able to like double confirm this but it seems like he's it's opposing a um a uh, proposal to like make it uh possible to do ballot measures in florida Mm. um Mm. uh, like ballot initiatives uh and his he cut an ad and i'm being very generous when i say that he like made a little video um that is based on the like old recycling ad with the crying Native American guy. Uh, there it is. There it is. Oh boy! Gets like what appears to be a white guy in like a Halloween costume, dressed up as an indigenous person in brown face. Mm, very good. Uh, mm. Isn't makeup, but it's basically it's basically brown oh face because he's wearing a full on like Native American uh, regalia of some kind, like, like stereotypical a like outfit with like like a, a, like a Halloween costume that still has like Indian printed on it or something. Oh. You know what I mean? <laughs> like. Um, Aren't aren't Halloween the, aren't Halloween stores in Florida just open year round? I feel like that's a <laughs> context gonna, for this. That you're gonna say like aren't Halloween stores more woke than that now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, Artie. Even I know that that is not true. <laughs> no, no, Vince. That's the firework tents on the side of the freeway. Uh, but Word. yeah, they have. <laughs> but yeah, they have him. Uh, you know, like go up and do the like uh, crying thing, and he's standing in front of a sign that says the end is near. Um, anyway, sometime around 2012 or 2013, the, the, the blog sort of peters out after a a series of posts about how they're having engine troubles with the boat and he might have to move back to dry land. Um, but it's okay. Cause then he went and like ran an unsuccessful bid for a Republican challenger to Andrew Cuomo to governor. Um, and then eventually wound up on the Trump campaign and the rest is history. Hmm. So and now he's concerned about the very long shadows in his DC apartment. And this concludes. <laughs> this has been Michael Caputo. This is your life. <laughs> wow, oh, the Artie. authoritarian Thank goofballs. You. <laughs>
He really is. This dude. I have so much love for Floridians. I'm I, sorry. I dislike how endearing of a figure he is. Um, but you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's clearly I'm, having some sort of mental health crisis. And normally, I don't like to tease people when they're in crisis. But his crisis is particularly harmful because, I mean, in his appearances. I don't even know if we should call them appearances. In his appearances on the HHS podcast and his own Facebook live feed, he like got into deep detail about COVID deaths and how that's affecting his mental health. And he's like, you know, mentally suffering as a result. So I feel kind of bad that this guy is cracked, but no, but the, I feel like when, you know, back in 2017, you know, one of the big questions that was on a, a lot of people's minds is like, where are they going to get the people to staff this government as political appointees. And, <laughs> and there were like maybe like three or four archetypes. There was like, first there was like the old school, just like, you know, whatever, Alex Azar, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 bush, hold, the bush holdover. Right? I mean, there's like the bush holders, but they're also just the people that are just like industry being brought into government. Mm-hmm. There's a board. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, then, then, then you've got the, the new, uh, sort of like industry. You've got the, the, the Betsy, your Betsy DeVos is your, your sort of like, uh, bottom feeding industry hucksters, right. With right. like weird sort of, uh, you know, Dutch, Dutch Christianity ties. And then, um, <laughs> and then you've got like the two other types to me are the ones that have become the most like significant and dominant, like throughout, uh, the, you know, administration on the one, like the one hand, you've got the Stephen Millers, uh, of the world. Um, and it's like, you know, young people who have basically spent their entire careers or like their short lives, like sharpening their knives for like a race war. And then you've got the Caputos of the world who are like, you know, they're pina colada boys and they just, they, they just want to have a good time. But they have found that like the easiest way for whatever reason, like this, the particular skill set that the good Lord blessed them with makes it only possible for them to have a good time while like depriving people of Medicaid or but, like at the end of the day, in their mind, they're not like the Paul Ryan types who are like, ah, like I, I am, you know, philosophically committed. And I will only right. allow myself a treat if the deficit goes down or something like that. Um, right. And, and and they're not like the Stephen Miller types. Is like I don't have a, a central nervous system. I just have, just like, I just have the, uh, you know, I just I just have like the the cortex of of bitterness and resentment that's like built up over. Right. Uh, yeah, like that's all I have. But these guys, like you know, the the computers of the world, they see themselves. As just like parrot heads, probably and like, well, you know, I'm a parrot head, but also this is how I may like pay the rent on my boat. Right. Well, it's definitely like it's definitely sort of a, like a combination of just like encountering the Stevens Miller of the world for the first time and being like, whoa. And then being like, I mean, yeah, like the race war sounds kind of fun. That's uh, that sounds like a good time. You know, I mean, you know, you could you could say, you know, yeah, like I guess like Phil just gave us the whole taxonomy of like, you know, you could say well, where 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 are you going to find these people? Where do you find these people? Well, you know, I think you may discount how many people are out there living on their boat, you know, 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, also in a world where like, frankly, quite obviously like what, uh, what ended up, you know, beyond people staffing, uh, you know, ex- executive, um, like executive branch positions, like where like quite literally like Oliver North, who we mentioned earlier was brought in to like work on the, what happened in Venezuela. Right. Uh, in like 2018, um, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole network. Of course, like the whole, the whole party's here, you know, anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. Um, like the other thing about this Caputo story is that, um, like one of the very clear things that he, sort of said in like what these things were supposed these these sort of like interference with all of the data was supposed to emphasize which is like the route to you know a better 2021 is like the it is not actually doing any sort of public health but instead just like you know knowing that the vaccine is around the corner uh you know continuing on not letting like the virus win you know like not letting the terrorists <laughs> yeah. win, dampening our um, spirits. But the, but I think the, you know, the funny thing is that like that is very consistent with the like the message that Trump is putting out, sort of prior to uh, to the election that like he has this, you know, like famously, uh, you know, says like we've got a great plan. It's going to be better for you, George. Like it's going to be, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> right. Which of course, like, has never. You know, it's obviously never materialized. materialized, and we all like know what it would be, um, which is nothing. <laughs> um, but the but the thing, like, so yeah, like you you watch like the town hall with with Trump, and like that's obviously, you know, that is his response. It's like it's going to be great, and we're going to protect you, uh, and like it'll be really important and good. Um, but the the one thing, like the policy thing that has seem to be the thing that he has tried to hang his hat on for the election is this uh, drug price executive order, uh, which he, he released mm-hmm. a sort of uh, an early version of in or he released an initial version of in August, which basically like from a policy perspective, like the one like pretty huge thing was forcing uh, uh, drug companies to offer uh, medicines to Medicare at the prices they pay in other countries. So it's reference pricing thing, which, which would be like one of the most significant changes in drug price, like policy in, in American history, right? It, it's, yeah. it's huge. And initially and I'm, the, th- I'm assuming ahead. you're not, you're not saying that because it would actually be a particularly like amazing change, really just, the fact that yes it's yeah exactly like it's not you know nothing this isn't isn't making making uh drugs free by any means right but like compared to what other administrations have done like it seemed on its face to be big but there were always the the big issue with it was initially that like he said well this will go into effect if the drug companies can't come up with something different in like you know 30 days and of Mm -hmm. course that wasn't going to happen. And and so I think a lot of people expected that like once that lapsed, uh, because of course they're not really going to do negotiation right with, uh, with Mm-mm. pharma on this. Yeah. I think a lot of people expected like that when that lapsed, it would be like, well, you know, we tried to do this, but you know, the, the globalists and the elites, you know, they didn't want you to have it, but like, this is what we care about that. They were just going to take it as a symbolic thing and just like, you know, let it alone. 
But what they seem to have done is, okay, they've, they've now um, issued the order again and have actually expanded it to include not just Part B drugs, but all Part D drugs, which is a significant yeah. mm-hmm. uh, chunk of the market, right? And so it's pretty it's pretty intense. I was surprised to see that, frankly. Right. And so I think that there's a question of like, what uh, what is this? I mean, like, yes, it's clearly an election year stunt, but it also is a like a slap in the face of the drug industry. But one way of looking at it is it's just a continued slap in the face of the drug industry, which is which is interesting. Um, I, you know, personally, it's like clearly they're the industry is going to challenge this in court. Everyone knows that this is going to be struck down um, in, in the uh, DC uh, court of appeals. But like, um, I think, I think the interesting thing is that it does, it sets an interesting new marker, right? Which is that like, I don't think at all Trump intends to like, make this policy. This is a completely incredible commitment for him. And I think the the yeah. fact that it's going to be struck down quickly is why he's doing it. Um, mm-hmm. If you had a court that would uphold this, he wouldn't have issued it. Uh, but mm-hmm. it is, it, <laughs> interestingly, it does create a new, you know, plinth for like doing something that Congress, including like Democratic Congresses, have just left on the table and have never even tried to enact. Um, right. And so it's like, It'll be interesting to see like what, like how, how Democrats respond to this. Cause like I can imagine them saying like, you know, we have a better plan of some kind and then just sort of like deferring it. But like, it does set a new, <laughs> new, new marker. And like, if you don't like actually commit to something in a serious way on it, you leave this gaping hole <laughs> electorally <laughs> um, to, you know, uh, th- this, this entire sort of issue. I mean, it's, this is like, it is uh, like strategically speaking, in just uh, the one of the lone strokes of genius um, in, in in the administration. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, the like the the I think the underlying thing here is, and the reason why it does make especially a particularly uh, clever like you know re-election bid. Look, then the reason why. Um, I think, you know, people are like decrying it or, you know, or are like upset about it coming. Like a lot of Democrats are upset about it saying, uh, even not, not just saying like, oh, well, it's like, it's fake. It's not going to work or mm-hmm. whatever. Cause that is a pretty common line. Um, but like, for example, there's a, there's a article in stat news that, uh, quotes, um, Brad Woodhouse, who's the director of, uh, protect our care, which is just mm. <laughs> lobbying group basically. Um, okay. But saying, uh, quote, am I frustrated that Trump uh, is even with Biden or slightly ahead on the issue of prescription drugs? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And this comes out of uh, stuff from like there's a there's a Kaiser uh, Family Foundation poll showing that uh, on the issue of health care and drug pricing, Trump has like uh, is like actually ahead on uh, per, people's perception of like what he would actually do on drug pricing. It's like 46 to 42. Yeah. Um, and that basically it's pretty embarrassing for Biden, frankly. Well, and that, uh, in the, in the yet, uh, another poll, it's like this proposal, this, uh, like, uh, was it for favored, most favored nation proposal? Um, it's pretty popular. It's like, it gets, it pulls at like 87%, uh, among voters generally, including 84% uh, 
of, of Democrats. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, this isn't going to happen. Like they're not going to, no. this is something that's like very clever for them to like bring up, but it's like, you know, like most things, uh, that they, uh, that they do in, for, for example, like healthcare space, they can just sort of like say it and then drop it and then just go on to the next thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, um, you know, is it clever? Yeah. Yeah. It's a smart ploy. The single smart, the only like smarter thing I could think of is if Trump just straight up went like, we're going to do Medicare for all or something. And it would be like (laughs) basically making Medicare advantage for all or something. But you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, yeah, no, that's very true already. And I think it's this sort of whole thing of, of like, oh, well, you know, healthcare is not polling as much as, as coronavirus and police is also another sort of telling fake gotcha, Mm -hmm. um, trying to divert attention away from what is actually a pretty, um, bold goal and strong move. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, anytime I, I'm thinking of saying the word bold now, I I just say goal afterwards implicitly. Just say robust instead. Cause, uh, cause we all love robustness and robust things. Sun dried, Mm -hmm. spicy, (laughs) better than the original and new and improved. (laughs) Well, I think with that, uh, we'll call it a day. Oh yeah! Thank you for listening. If you want extra death panel in your life, then become a patron on Patreon, patreon.com slash death panel pod. On Monday, uh, our episode from this week, we talked about Matt Iglesias's new book with Jacob Bacharach, who reviewed it that for yeah. the new Republic. It was really so good. Fun. fun episode. Yeah. 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 Highly recommend. Um, Don't recommend the book though. No, don't buy the book. Do not buy the book. Become a patron and listen to our review. Don't buy the book. You don't need it. Trust me. Um, Read uh, Tim Faust's forthcoming One Billion and One Americans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for listening. Patrons, thank you for supporting the show. Join the Discord. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Hell yeah. Bye bye. And now, Daniel, Beatrice's screen reader program, reads selections from Michael Caputo's blog, A Reasonable Shade of Green, the 5th of July, 2011. The very best restaurant in the world. It's in Hamburg, New York. No kidding. By Michael Caputo. My wife and I were looking for a special place to celebrate our wedding anniversary. Like a typical tone-deaf husband, I had forgotten to get a reservation anywhere. I scrambled to make up for my mistake. We live in the South Towns and didn't want to head to downtown Buffalo if we could avoid it. So I called Andrew Galano, food editor of the Buffalo News and an old UB pal. He recommended Daniel's restaurant on Buffalo Street in Hamburg. We had never heard of it before. I called in the hostess manager to fit us in. I mentioned in passing that it was our anniversary and we were surprised to be seated at the best two top in the house, on a little landing elevated above the rest of the dining room. Instant romance. When the dinner rolls arrived it became quickly evident that we were in for a treat. I've never had rolls so well made, so light, unique and delicious. My wife is a vegetarian, which can be a challenge in small town America, not at Daniels. The server, a consummate professional organized a special dish for her. Marina had an inspiring salad and an asparagus main course that she still talks about. I ordered a soft shell crab appetizer that blew me away. 
Since I've caught and cooked soft shells on three continents, I was surprised by the finest rendition of the delicacy I've ever had. The sauce was so good there weren't enough rolls to sop it up. I'm salivating just thinking about it. Daniel should top your list when you compile it and you should check it out. Personally, it is a wee bit pricey for Western New York, a special occasion kind of place, but it serves the finest food on planet Earth. I'm not kidding. And I'm not hungry. I'm just stating a fact. Daniel's restaurant on Buffalo Street in Hamburg is the best restaurant in the world. Not just in Buffalo, in the world. The 15th of September, 2008. Al Gore's Houseboat Rocks, by Michael Caputo. Hey landlubbers, lay off the former Veeb. Former Vice President Al Gore is catching some heat from right-wingers again, this time for his 100-foot houseboat Biosolar one. Now, I like to poke fun at preachy Gore as much as the next guy, but criticizing a man's boat is just as wrong as making fun of his mother, maybe more so. Gore's houseboat has 20 solar panels, the Maribel has 4. Gore's boat is actually quite an achievement, if you are into houseboats. From photos run in the Nashville Tennessean, it appears he has 20 solar panels on the roof. With this array, he produces enough electricity tied up at the dock to sell some back to the grid. My guess is, when Biosoda 1 is in full party mode there's not enough sunshine falling on the entire state of Tennessee to power it for long. Interestingly, he is also running his engines on biodiesel fuel. Unfortunately, I don't think they sell biodiesel anywhere on Center Hill Lake, where the Gores keep the boat. He probably has it trucked in. I wonder how many gallons of French fry greasy burns cruising per hour? My home and office, a tug trawler called the Marable, is a modest take on Gore's ambitious project. I installed four 130 kilowatt solar panels on the roof. I produce and store enough energy to sustain my personal and business activities. The engine still runs on diesel, but I rarely fire up my generator. I put together a short video on the green systems of the Maribel. If you are curious, you can watch it here. I give Al Gore credit for doing as much as he possibly can with today's technology to minimize the carbon footprint of his pleasure craft. The self-styled father of the modern green movement often warrants criticism. In contrast, Biosoda 1 is worth admiring.